26 years ago this month, I was in an accident that could have taken my life, but it didn't. It happened in the summer of 1992. I was just 19 years old, and I was in a van with my friend Brett, and he was driving. We were on the interstate late at night. We were trying to get home after a long trip. Neither one of us had gotten much sleep, and I was doing my best to keep Brett awake. At some point, though, I just dozed off in the passenger seat. I woke up to a loud crash, and my head slammed against the side of the van. All of a sudden, everything was quiet. We had come to a stop on the dotted line in the middle of the interstate. Thankfully, there was no traffic. Brett managed to restart the van and pull over to the shoulder and onto the grass. And that's when I got out and I started to assess what had happened. My head was bleeding. And as I got something to use as a bandage, I saw what we had hit. You see, Brett had fallen asleep at the wheel. And we just drifted off the highway And the van had slammed into the front edge of a bridge leading onto an overpass. We had bounced back into the road, but if we had bounced the other way to the right, the van would have dropped into a deep ravine with us inside. Uh, It was very dark, so I'm not sure, but I think there was a river at the bottom. The point is, If we had swerved just a few inches to the right, that accident would have been much more serious. And here I stand, years later, and my question is, why? Why did we survive that night when many others don't? Why are there some occasions when terrible things do happen, but then other times, like with me and Brett, people are spared? As we go through life, this why question comes up again and again. You could take any three random people and follow them over a period of years. One gets diagnosed with terminal cancer. The second suffers from chronic pain year after year. But then the third person lives a long, healthy life. Why? Is there a reason why some suffer more than others? We want there to be a reason. We want life to make sense. And that's why we look to God. Sometimes, though, looking to God makes things even more complicated. Take my example from 26 years ago. Did God intervene to spare my life? Or was He just watching as the laws of physics played out? It's kind of hard to say, isn't it? But if he was just watching, what does that mean for those situations that don't have a happy ending? If God has the power to intervene, but on certain occasions he just doesn't, what does that tell us about him? Can we still say that God is good and loving and just? How could a good God sit back and allow innocent people to suffer? Well, these are the kind of questions we've been dealing with for the past two weeks in this series on the life of Job. And whether you're talking about this Bible character from centuries ago 
or you're talking about you and me today, it's the same dilemma. When bad things happen, we have to decide what to make of God. This morning, I want to look at two options that we all have. When we encounter suffering, we can choose to declare God's goodness or doubt God's goodness. Now, if you choose the first option, you're saying, hey, I I may not understand what's happened. I may not understand why, but I still believe that God is good all the time. Now, that's the choice of faith. But if you've been in the valley you know that faith doesn't always come easy. In the valley, you may doubt that God is good. In fact, you may doubt that He's there at all. This is why some people choose to be atheists. They say, if there really was a God who is all-powerful and completely loving, well, then He would do something about all the pain in this world. He'd fix it. He'd prevent it. This morning, we're going to hear God speak for Himself. We've come to the conclusion of the book of Job, and in this conclusion, God does what many of us think we want. God actually shows up, and He responds to the questions about His goodness and His justice. I should go ahead and tell you now, God does not respond with all the answers we'd like to have And He doesn't wrap everything up with a neat little bow, but God does tell us what we need to know, and we can't really ask for more than that. So first, let's make sure we're all up to speed. Two weeks ago, uh, we read through the introduction of Job's story. And by the way, for visual learners like me, we've been using these illustrations from a group called The Bible Project, and they have this great video that gives an overview of the book. But in week one, we learned that Job was extremely wealthy and very blessed. He had thousands of animals, a whole army of servants, and he had ten children, seven sons, and three daughters. We also learned that Job was a man of great character. God called him blameless and upright. Looks pretty good on a resume when God says that about you. But then things take a strange turn. In the throne room of God, Satan appears, and he says, the only reason Job is righteous is because God has blessed his socks off. So, God allows Satan to torment Job. First, all of his animals and all of his servants are killed. Then, all ten of his children are killed. And finally, Job is inflicted with terrible sores all over his body. And in chapter 2, we see him sitting in a pile of ashes, tearing his clothes in agony and scraping at his sores with broken pottery. Now remember, Satan predicted that Job would curse God when all these blessings were taken away, but that's not what happened. Job refused to curse God. In fact, throughout this entire book, Job never curses God. However, He does ask some very tough questions. He even makes accusations against God. Now, last week, Dylan did a great job of walking us through the middle section of this book. For more than 30 chapters, the book of Job consists of arguments and speeches trying to make sense of what happened to this guy. 
And many of these arguments are between Job and three of his friends. And at first, it seems like these friends show up to comfort Job, but pretty soon we find out they're not going to be any comfort at all. See, Job's friends had a simplistic view of God and the world. They believed that God ran this world according to a certain system where good people get good things and bad people get bad things. From their point of view, the system was very straightforward. It was one-to-one. If you do something good, God will reward you. If you do something bad, you'll be punished. If you do something really bad, you'll get a severe punishment. That's how the friends understood God's justice. So when it came to Job, these guys had a simple explanation. They said, well, there has to be a reason for your suffering, Job. God is punishing you. You did something wrong. So the best thing you could do is repent. Job, however, understands things a little differently. Now, he does agree that God was responsible for his pain. In chapter 16, Job says, God has turned me over to the ungodly and thrown me into the clutches of the wicked. All was well with me, but he shattered me. He seized me by the neck and crushed me. So Job doesn't believe these things just happened. He says, God did this to me. Even if God was not the direct cause of his suffering, he didn't do anything to prevent it. So when we get to chapter 27, we see Job declaring that God has denied me justice. Now, why does Job say that? Well, this is the foundation of his argument, the basis of his complaint. He says, I do not deserve to be treated this way. And it would be one thing if Job was a wicked man being rightfully punished, but we know that wasn't the case. Remember, it was God who declared that Job was blameless and upright. So Job says, I know I'm innocent, and because of that, I have to conclude that God is not being just here. If God was acting fairly, then He would bless me at least more than wicked people. So this whole experience has altered Job's worldview. This experience has altered Job's view of God. In chapter 9, he says, it is all the same. That is why I say God destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When a scourge brings sudden death, he mocks the despair of the innocent. It's a pretty, pretty strong statement. Now, so far, what do you make of Job's conclusions and his accusations? Do you think he's moving toward the truth or away from the truth? Well, it's kind of interesting. Here's what I see. Job's three friends, they represented a common belief system of that day, the the belief that God blesses good people and He punishes bad people. But through Job's suffering, he's learned that this common belief system, it's inadequate. It doesn't explain the reality around us. Now, this may be surprising, but if you go to the New Testament, you'll find Jesus Himself debunking this old, simplistic worldview. In Luke chapter 13, verse 4, Jesus makes a reference to a recent tragedy, and He says, what about those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them? Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? 
I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. So do you see what Jesus is saying there? A tower fell, an accident happened, but Jesus says, don't assume that God has punished those people because they were worse than the rest of you. The truth is, we just live in a fallen world where suffering happens. People get sick. People get hurt. Crimes are committed. Disasters occur. This is a dangerous place. This world can be beautiful, but it's also deadly. And Jesus says, you may not like to think about it, but all of you are headed for death unless you get things straightened out with God. And as you read through all of Jesus' teaching, you may notice something. There's one thing that Jesus does not do. Jesus never questions the goodness and the justice of God. Now, that's exactly what Job does, and his questions go on chapter after chapter. Finally, though, we reach the dramatic conclusion. In chapter 38, God shows up. He appears in a whirlwind, in a great storm, and in classic unpredictable form, God does not answer Job's questions. Instead, God answers Job's questioning. Let's read chapter 38, starting with verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. You can tell it's about to get good, right? From there... God spends the final chapters of this book just firing questions at Job, one after the other. God confronts Job with 77 questions in all. And if I had to summarize all 77 of these questions, I'd say that God is basically going to Job and asking, seriously? (laughs) Are you seriously going to question me? Are you really trying to pretend that you are on my level? Do you honestly think you're in a place to tell me what's right and what's wrong, what's fair and what's unfair? Listen to what God says to Job. He asks, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? It's like God is saying, okay, Job, can you tell me how I created the universe? I don't remember you being there. Can you explain how I did it? Can you tell me how it all works? And then God takes Job on a whirlwind tour of creation. He says, were you there when I organized the constellations? Have you ever commanded the sun to rise in the morning? Can you control the weather? Do you know the feeding patterns of lions? Do you know when each and every mountain goat is born? Do you watch as every doe gives birth to a fawn? Do you follow the wanderings of every wild donkey? God just goes on and on. Remember, there are 77 of these questions. And what can Job say to any of this? Um, no, I wasn't there. And no, I don't control the weather, and no, I don't follow the wild donkeys. (laughs) But God isn't looking for a response to each of these questions. The purpose of the questions is to make a point. God's main point is that Job is in no position 
to accuse God. He's saying, you can't evaluate whether I'm just or not because number one, you haven't been around long enough. I go back before the beginning of time. Number two, you're not smart enough. I know everything. Number three, you're not strong enough. I can do anything. And number four, you haven't traveled far enough. I've been everywhere. I am everywhere. Now, before we forget, let's remember, Job has already been through a lot. He's lost his riches. He's lost his children. He's lost his health. It's enough to bring anyone to the breaking point. So, why do you think God is coming on so strong here? Does it seem to you like God is kicking a man when he's down? Well, watch out, because that's how we get ourselves into trouble. From our vantage point, yes, we may think that God should be a little more gentle with Job. But that's exactly the point that God is making. He's saying that our vantage point, the human perspective, is far too limited, too incomplete to make any kind of value judgment on God's behavior. God is actually doing Job a huge favor here, and by extension, He's doing all of us a huge favor. You see, in our minds, we tend to place ourselves in the center of the universe. We value our opinions and our understanding and our feelings above all others. So we need this wake-up call. We all need this wake-up call. I need to realize who I am in relation to the universe. You and I are incredibly small. I also need to understand who I am in relation to God. For example, when you think of God, what image, uh, what picture pops into your head Do you picture a giant old man in the sky with a big beard? Many of us do. But guess what? God is not simply a bigger version of a human being. He's not just a little above and beyond us. He is infinitely above and beyond us. We have no way to conceive a being who is everywhere at once. We have no way to conceive a being who existed before time. You can try. It's kind of a fun exercise. Try to imagine what was God doing before He created the universe. Can you do that? First of all, um, where was He? Can you imagine a place that's not in the universe? No, you can't do that. And then, then what was God doing? What activity was He engaged in? You, you can try to think of something, but whatever you come up with, you can't help but think of God doing something that would take time. But what was it like, what is it like to exist outside of time? It's mind-blowing, isn't it? But let's keep things more in line with the context of this story. Let, let's think about those situations when, like Job, we feel like we have a better idea for how to run the universe. How would you tackle that task of running the universe? How would you make sure that everyone gets exactly what they deserve? Let's try another example. Let's say that some horrible man commits a horrible crime. You would want that man to be punished, right? And you would want the punishment to match the crime. So you might have him killed, You might have him thrown into prison with a life sentence. 
And whatever punishment you chose, you may feel like you were completely justified in your decision. But what if this man, this horrible man, has little children? Do you think these children will suffer if their father is executed or locked away for life? Of course they'll suffer. But his actions are not their fault. They don't deserve to be punished. So what do you do? Do you let the man go free? I mean, how's that fair? How's that just? How would you work it out? You see, that one-to-one system is much too simplistic. This world is far more complex than we often think about. My story and my actions are intertwined with hundreds or thousands of other stories in ways that are just impossible for me to fathom. At the same time, though, we really want this life to make sense. I still want to look back on that accident in 1992 and figure out a way to explain it. Was it just random or did God spare me as some kind of reward for good behavior? Uh, After all, I didn't tell you this, but I had spent that entire summer traveling around to Christian camps doing ministry with young people. So was God thanking me by letting me see another day? Well, I'm not sure we could say that because the truth is uh, I can also remember specific ways that I disappointed God in that same year before the accident. I got into that van deserving to be punished for certain sins I had committed. So, is that what the accident was about? Was it a stern warning? Well, let's go back to what Jesus said. What did he say about those people who were killed by the tower in Siloam? He said those people were not killed because of a particular sin. They were just living in a fallen, dangerous world, and everyone is headed for death, eternal death, unless things get straightened out with God. So that means we should be very careful about assigning a cause when bad things happen. We should always defer to a wisdom that's beyond us. That's what God is saying to Job. He says, my wisdom is what counts here, not yours. So how does Job respond to all of God's questions? Well, there's not much he can say, right? In chapter 40, verse 3, it says, Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. So Job is clearly humbled here, but not quite enough. God's not done yet. He still wants to bring out two major object lessons. And over the next two chapters, God speaks to Job about the behemoth and the leviathan. Now, different scholars have different explanations about these two creatures, Uh, With the behemoth, uh, some say it was like a dinosaur, maybe a brontosaurus. Some say it's more like a hippo. hippo. Uh, Others say it was a mythological creature or primarily symbolic. And it's kind of the same with the Leviathan. You'll hear all kinds of interpretations, everything from a sea serpent to a giant crocodile to Satan himself. And it's a fascinating study trying to identify these creatures, but right now we're going to stick to the point that God is making here. God describes the behemoth as a a large, powerful animal that feeds on grass. So it's not a meat eater. 
but it's still not something you want to mess with. God says in Job chapter 40, verse 19, the behemoth ranks first or greatest among the works of God, yet its maker can approach it with his sword. And then down in verse 24, can anyone, can any human capture it by the eyes or trap it and pierce its nose? So God is kind of saying, hey, Job, do you think you could handle a behemoth as a house pet? You couldn't, but I can. And God makes a similar point with the Leviathan. His, his description goes on even longer with this creature, and, and it sounds a lot like a dragon, uh, complete with the ability to breathe fire. But then God asks, can you pull in Leviathan with a fish hook or tie down its tongue with a rope? No one is fierce enough to rouse it. Who then is able to stand against me? Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. So we see that God goes to great lengths to emphasize this one main point. You remember what it was? Job is in no position to accuse God. And it's the same with us. You and I are in no position to accuse God. So after the speech about the behemoth and the Leviathan, God stops questioning Job. Just like that, He's done speaking. But there is so much that God did not say. If you were here for week one of this series, you may remember that I brought up a question. I said, I would love to know, why did God allow Satan to torment Job? God actually gave Satan permission to cause all of that suffering. Why did God do that? Well, as God speaks for Himself in Job chapter 38 to 41, He doesn't tell us why He did that. He doesn't answer Job's questions. He answers Job's questioning. Job demanded an explanation from God, but instead, God invites Job to trust Him without an explanation. Now, that may not be the response we want from God, but it is the response we need. And I'll explain that in a minute, but first we need to finish the story. In the end, Job's life takes a dramatic positive turn. First, God sets the record straight. He says, those friends, they were wrong about how the world works. And then God commends Job for, for being honest in his struggle. And, and by the way, that's good to hear, isn't it? God says it was okay for Job to have those questions and those doubts. It was a good thing for Job to wrestle through all of that and to pour his heart out to God in honest prayer. God wants us to be honest with him. But basically, God vindicates Job in front of his friends. In fact, he requires that the friends make sacrifices, and Job serves as something like a priest between his friends and God then something even more amazing happens. Chapter 42, verse 10, after Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. So as rich as Job had been before all of that tragedy, he was far wealthier now. Now, Job had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. Even more significantly, Job was blessed with ten more children, seven sons and three daughters. The last verse of this book tells us that Job lived to be 140. 
And the last part of his life was very full. Now, right away, we're tempted to jump to a conclusion here, aren't we? Why did God restore Job's fortunes? Was it some kind of reward for refusing to curse God when he was in the middle of suffering? Well, the Bible doesn't say that. It doesn't tell us that was the reason. If we've learned anything today, we, we should be very hesitant to say why God does what He does. And here, we, this is just one more why question that we don't get the answer to. God restored Job. He gave him all these good gifts. That, that's what we know. We don't know why. So let's back up and ask an even bigger question. Why doesn't God tell us why? Why doesn't He explain Himself? If we are so limited in our perspective, why doesn't He enlighten us? The truth is, He has enlightened us. As Dylan said last week, God makes His wisdom available to us in His Word. Scripture is the only way to be confident that you're hearing from God. But what do we do when even Scripture doesn't give us the answers we're looking for? Well, that's all part of the plan. If we get all the answers we want, there's no need for faith. If God explained everything for us, if He gave us all of the proof of His existence and His power and His goodness, if He removed all the mysteries, then guess what? If all our questions are answered, then we would be walking by sight, not walking by faith. And the Bible is very consistent on this topic. God requires faith from us. Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. So when God looks at you and He looks at me, He's looking for faith. He wants us to say, I don't have all the answers, God, but I will trust you anyway. And I don't see long-term where you are leading me, but I see that you're asking me to take a step and I'm going to choose to trust you. I'm going to step out on faith. If you want to be on good terms with God, faith is not optional. It's essential. Now, I'm not talking about a blind faith. That's not what God is asking for. He gives us plenty of proof that He is real, that He is good. He just doesn't give us all of the proof. He wants us to to see the evidence that takes us to the gap and then take a leap of faith to cover that final distance there. He wants us to choose to believe that He deserves our trust, that Jesus deserves our trust. What do we find in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8? It says, for it is by grace you have been saved through what? Through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. It's not that one-to-one system where People do good and they get good in return. People do bad and they get bad in return. And thank God, it's not that system because we all deserve death. So if you have found a life-changing relationship with Jesus, if you have received that grace, it doesn't mean you have all the answers. It does not mean that you will escape all suffering, but it does mean that you are forgiven and free, that you've received salvation from a God who is 100% good and 100% just. And we may not understand how this life makes sense. Our perspective is so limited. But we can choose to trust God anyway. Even in the middle of suffering, we can hold on to a promise that 
one day God will restore everyone who belongs to Jesus. That restoration may not come in this life, but it will definitely come when this life is over. Everyone in Christ can look forward to an eternity with no more tears, no more pain, no more death. So there are two options in front of all of us today. You can declare God's goodness or you can doubt God's goodness. And even if you are in that valley right now, in a a dark place, remember Job. He doubted and he questioned. And God said that was okay. But we can't make doubt our destination. I want to say that again. We can't make doubt our destination. We need to pass through the doubt to come back around and declare, yes, God, you are good and I will trust in you. I want to take a moment to listen to the words of a song. This song was written by someone who went through that season of doubt and came back around to trust. Let's listen. Child. 
that you're always good. You're always good. As we try to believe what is not meant to be understood. Will you help us to trust your intentions for us are still good? Because you laid down your life and you suffered like I never could. You're all. 